Hey, Tim. Hey, Brett. Hi. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, as Ian said, you probably already know Tim Mackey, but in case you don't, Tim, could you maybe give a little bit of background <laughs> um, of your story and um, maybe say what the Bible Project is mm -hmm. um, to give context to why we should be asking you about the Bible? <laughs> uh, cer certainly, Brett. Um, I, I grew up, uh, this is, uh, we're on 32nd, right? 32nd. Yeah, and Taylor. So I grew up on 22nd in Hawthorne, so just, you know, just right over there. And um, so I grew up here in Portland, and um, my parents follow Jesus, and they're incredible people. Um, and I started following Jesus, um, well, it, it took a while for it to catch on for me, so I was almost 20. And um, I uh, heard and understood who Jesus was in a way that I could understand um, through the skate church ministry that was over, used to be over on Upper Northeast. And um, that was a really amazing experience because I didn't really have anything going on in my life except for skateboarding and working at Spaghetti Factory um, <clears throat> in the evenings. And uh, I had such a, a powerful encounter with Jesus in that community um, and the Bible played a really significant role in that community. And so I just started to read it for the first time and I just had so many questions. <laughs> I was just so bewildered. Um, and, but I was really like down for Jesus. I was so compelled by um, who he is. And so it just so happened there was a Christian college across the street uh, named Multnomah uh, Bible College then. And so I signed up for classes with some friends, we'd all started following Jesus together, and um, I just sat in How to Read Biblical Literature 101, and I was just m absolutely mesmerized. It was just the most e electrifying experience I'd ever had. And I'd also um, finally quit smoking pot for, I think, a long enough time <laughs> where I could actually, I was actually thinking clearly, and um, I, so my gateway into like learning about anything, about history and language and culture was all through learning how to read biblical literature. And I think uh, for me, even though I was bewildered by what I was learning how to read, um, it illuminated Jesus for me so consistently that he just kept becoming even more beautiful and amazing to me than I already thought he was. And so um, when I finished, well, so then I was like, well, I guess the natural thing is to sign up for Greek because <laughs> a quarter of the Bible is written in Greek and I guess I'll sign up for Hebrew because three quarters of the Bible is written in Hebrew with a little Aramaic in there. And so that's what I did. And um, when I finished my, uh, my college degree, I was like, I just, I have so many questions still. And so I went to seminary and I, that was amazing, and I just had so many questions still, and so I um, ended up going, uh, sh shipping off to the Midwest to um, the Department of Hebrew and Semitic Studies um, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I did a PhD in early Judaism and Hebrew, and 
That was amazing. <laughs> um, and what was amazing about that was um, it was a cross department between um, language and Jewish studies. And so it was Jewish and Christian students for all over the spectrum. But the goal was just to really dial in your Hebrew and understand the history and culture of ancient Judaism and how the Bible came out of that. And so that's what I did. But um, I was really, uh, in terms of why I got into it, it, it was really about Jesus. And so I just felt called back into local church ministry and I found myself kind of back and forth between being a nerd academic and being a pastor. I, I guess you can be both at the same time. I don't know, I guess so. <clears throat> so there you go. So, um, sorry, it's just so long. So it's I, okay, it's okay. <laughs> um, So I, I have a friend that I met at that skate, at the skate park, um, his name was John Collins. When I moved back to Portland to become the other pastor, that was my official title. <laughs> uh, when Why I, is that so fitting? Yeah, it was the other pastor um, at Door of Hope. That was in 2012. So it had been rocking like a year and a half, I think, Door of Hope. And, um, and so my friend John approached me once we were back in town, and he had a business that made short animated explainer videos about all kinds of stuff. And um, he asked me if I wanted to take some of the ideas that he and I had been talking about the Bible for a lot of years and make explainer videos about that. And so that's what we did. And then we called it The Bible Project. <laughs> and that go. started in 2014. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so his background is vast and trustworthy. Um, <laughs> I guess you could have just said that. <laughs> I guess so. <clears throat> but they can't just take my word for it. Okay, so these are some questions um, that actually Josh sent me. So um, he was very helpful. I'm just sitting in because... You're doing great. I don't have stage fright. That's why they call it... <laughs> um, so we're going to get into some questions tonight is about the Bible and about scripture and how we as a community, that is a value at Door of Hope that we need to press into. So last week we did prayer and tonight is the living word of God. Um, so the first question is, can you give us an overview, like a up above view of what the Bible even is? is if you were maybe to describe it to someone who had no con context, had never heard of the Bible, what would you say the Bible it is? What is the point? Um, is it historical, different genres? I know that's a lot, but explain it as if I didn't know. <laughs> um, I worked uh, really hard for a long time with a friend named John to condense the answer to that question into a five-minute video. <laughs> that, that would, as actually, it, like that would be better than what I'm about to say. So just um, so you know, I think it's the, the title of the video is What is the Bible? Just for, <laughs> just for you know. So here's my insufficient, uh, insufficient attempt. Um, uh, the Bible, the Christian Bible, is a collection of literature um, that comes from a particular people group from the ancient world. 
um, known as Israel, um, also known as the Jewish people, but for most of the period uh, where these texts were coming into existence, they were primarily known as the people of Israel. Um, and these, this collection of texts, there's two main collections. There's the, what Christians call the Old Testament. It's the first three quarters, really long. Um, you call it the Hebrew Bible, too. And then there's um, the New Testament. And, you know, these, uh, these texts tell the story uh, and are birthed from these people. These texts tell the story of the experience and the encounter that this people group had with a being who um, is referred to as the one who is, <laughs> um, or in Hebrew pronounced Yahweh. Um, and their encounter with the one who is was quite remarkable. And it kept being remarkable for like many generations. Um, and so uh, the first actually mention of the writing of the collection actually comes uh, from the time of Moses. Um, but the family story is like many generations in. And so that's a whole interesting rabbit hole about um, how cultures preserve their oral histories uh, before they need to be written down. But um, so, this is, it so this, it tells the story of their encounter. And this people group heard themselves and felt themselves to be called by the one who is to become the vehicle of God's Old, oh, the one who is, that's also called God, um, <clears throat> uh, to be the vehicle of ultimate beauty and blessing and justice and truth to, to all the people groups around them. And that is the calling that this people had throughout all of its history that they just couldn't shake, even when they wanted to shake it. Um, and what's remarkable is that this family story, that we call the Old Testament, is essentially um, a story of perpetual failure but it's not, they're not critiquing somebody else's failure. Like it's the family story saying, we failed <clears throat> in a big way. And so that's basically what the story's about. <laughs> um, but God's promise um, just keeps persisting throughout all of the generations. And here's what's really interesting is that the collection actually begins with like a prologue that we call um, uh, Genesis and then the first 11 chapters. Um, and the story of Israel and their encounter with the one who is is preceded by this cosmic prologue saying that what God is doing with this one family is actually like the vehicle or the conduit for what he's doing for all of humanity. And so Israel's failure to be that vehicle of blessing as told in their family story creates this crisis that's like that we call plot conflict, which is what makes for amazing stories and it's what makes real life so complicated. <clears throat> and so they had these figures called prophets and these sages who not just told the story, but then reflected poetically back on the story, like we, what we call like the book of Psalms or the prophets like Isaiah. And they were reflected on the past, but then they also had their own encounters with the one who is and said, well, if the one who is really is who he says that he is, then he's not going to leave it like this. He's going to like fulfill his promise. Um, and that's essentially where the Hebrew Bible points, and it gives lots of pointers to what the resolution of that promise is going to be in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's an image of the one who is coming in person in like glory and splendor to come create a new Garden of Eden everywhere. Sometimes it's about God appointing uh, a figure 
called the anointed one or the servant or a king or a priest who's going to come be the human that we know deep inside we are all made to be but consistently uh, fail at being. being. And that's kind of where the story points. And so that's the first three quarters. How you guys doing? I told you the five-minute video is a lot better. <laughs> so um, essentially what, as the collection comes to a close for the Hebrew Bible, um, the family of Israel, um, who had been defeated by a bunch of empires, taken into exile, and then you know, a bunch of them came back to their ancestral lands, um, they had this deep sense that there was something yet to happen in our family story with the one who is. Um, but they had competing interpretations of like how God was going to do it. And um, the period of time that we, that we think of maybe as in between the two testaments, in between the old and the new, is really remarkable. Actually, really, really remarkable. Very important time period. And there were lots of movements birthed um, of people just super like nerds on the written collection. Like they just prayed and read and studied the collection to look for patterns for what the one who is might do when he fulfills his promises. And so um, one particular st strand of that um, was the context from which this guy named John the Baptizer um, emerged out of. Um, and he was a relative of a, of a kid named Yeshua. Uh, who grew up in Nazareth, and um, when uh, Yeshua, or Jesus, came to be baptized by John to participate in this renewal movement, because they were convinced, like, it's about to go down. <clears throat> and uh, Jesus himself had a remarkable experience that we're told about in his baptism. And in that story, um, the whole vocation and calling that had been what the whole family story was all about, all of a sudden descends on the shoulders of this Yeshua. And then he just starts to go for it after that, um, announcing that the blessing and the kingdom of, of the one who is, is arriving here on earth through himself. And that unfolds the story of Jesus. So what's interesting about, the video is so much better than this. <laughs> what's interesting is, you know, Jesus never writes any books. He never wrote any books. Um, he was a traveling uh, sage and prophet. Um, and I guess also the equivalent of what we might think of as, as an activist, because he was forming cell communities, um, saying that um, the Garden of Eden and God's kingdom was touching down here on earth through himself. And it was healing people's bodies. And, but also, he was convinced that Israel had so squandered its calling and vocation that he um, was real irritating to the people who ran the show um, in the capital city of his people. And, and in fact, it angered them so much that they, they executed him. But he was convinced that actually this was a part of the divine plan um, so that the way out of death uh, and evil and human failure was to lead it to its ultimate end in the grave. Uh, and to overcome it with his life and love. And uh, the resurrection of Jesus is this moment that really is the kickstart of the thing that eventually became Messianic Judaism, or what we call it as Christianity. And Jesus appointed this crew that he was really close with to go represent him um, to all of the nations. And as they wrote their writings, then they wrote to guide early followers of Jesus for how to see themselves 
as the continuation of this whole family story, uh, but also that God was doing something new among the nations and that it's such good news and can so change your life that you should just tell people about it. And so that's what they did um, as the movement spread and then the, the writings of these earliest apostles were written down. And they were circulated and then eventually collected in what we call the New Testament. That was great. <laughs> was that, that was not very short. No, I mean, I don't think it needs to be short. These questions are so robust. I don't know. I feel like we should all get a master's degree at the end of tonight because they're very, I yeah. don't know if you'll even have time. It's a, it's a wonderful experience to do just that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I recommend it. Um, man, is it okay if I say something? I just feel so encouraged by what you yeah. said. Um, seeing someone so familiar with scriptures and know scripture so well, and then the way Tim is able to present it in a new way. So it, we're not, you're not just saying, well, there was a God, and in the beginning, I think maybe phrases we've grown tired of, when you're in love with the scriptures and understand them really well, you can present them in a way that's so compelling. Um, you know, can I follow on that? Yeah. Um, thank you for those kind words. Um, I, what is really important and became important for me and why I went to school for far too long. <laughs> um, but I, you know, when I was first introduced to the Bible, it was in this amazing, you know, community around, around Skate Church. And, I, you know, probably no one ever said this, but I just kind of got this vibe that the Bible is almost like this kind of magical, or has some kind of magical origins or magical um, uh, nature to it, so that the way that it came into existence must ultimately be kind of unexplainable, and um, to be truly the Word of God. I, I don't know if you ever pick up that vibe in any church communities, but I definitely did, and, you know, and for better or worse, that's the view, and so I call this the golden tablets, you know, falling from heaven view, but, uh, but the intuition, I think, is really important. Um, it's because um, both Jesus and this whole story is about an encounter with the one who is, who's like... The one who is. It's really the perfect name. Uh, the one who is. Um, that is beyond all of our categories. And so, um, you know, magic doesn't even begin to be sufficient word to describe the one who is because it's magic is tricks. You know, we're talking about the one who is. So, of course, that the origins of this document are going to be remarkable. But um, as I begin to delve more and more and become obsessed with understanding the historical origins of the Bible, I was really surprised and excited and energized and disturbed at how much of the Bible's history can be traced through like archaeology, ancient manuscript history, ancient historic, uh, historiography and knowing the people of ancient Israel. And so you can actually give a pretty robust account about where most of these documents actually come from in the history and culture of the people of Israel. And uh, that was an early tension that I felt. The, the easiest way to summarize it is between my, my acceptance of this claim that scriptures have a divine nature to them or origin, but at the same time, they have a very clearly human nature and origin to them. They come from these people 
And these texts were written by people. And so how the two of those go together has been a decades-long obsession for me, not to try and solve it, but to try and understand what it means to say a thing like these texts that are written by people communicate the word of the one who is. Like, what, is it, what does it really mean to say it, something like that? And so that has been a really important topic for me. And I'm guessing it is an interesting question to at least some people, because you've self-selected to come spend your Sunday night yeah. <laughs> talking about this, so, yeah. Tim. Yeah. You just naturally transitioned into the next question oh, on my wow. list. Wow, okay. Um, so, yeah, this very much has to do with that. If we see the Bible as just a magical book that appeared and don't care to learn, where did it actually come from? What are the historical origins? Um, we'll never, you know, go through the beautiful and amazing and terrifying questions that you've been going through. So the next question that Josh sent me was, what was the criteria for selecting what should and shouldn't be included in the scriptures that we follow? I know it's, you could answer that in like a book. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, we made a, this video about that question. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a 30 second part of the video. Uh, um, you know, so the, even asking, this is not about you or about Josh, but um, thinking of it in terms of um, criteria, um, I think might actually uh, be unhelpful as a starting point for that question. Um, so I, I, at least what's helpful for me in dealing with the historical sources that we have is that this family had consistently remarkable, remarkable encounters, both individuals in the people of Israel and as groups, these encounters with the one who is. And these texts um, are the result of generations and generations of people pouring prayerfully over and studying the patterns of the traditions, of the written traditions of their family history. But at the same time, um, there was this strain of figures, you know, that goes back to Abraham, but then Moses is the first one connecting with writing. And then with Moses, who was the one who brokered this covenant partnership between the one who is and all of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, famously. And, and he began a chain, there's a chain of, of figures that come from the line of Moses, they're called prophets. Um, and these were people who had radical, radical encounters with the one who is. And God, that is the one who is, um, kept appointing them, often um, against their own will or better judgment, um, to call the people of Israel to be faithful to that covenant partnership, to be the vehicle of blessing to the nations. And so as each generation went by, like new crazy stuff would go down, and then the prophets of that generation would be shaping the accounts of what happened in that period in light of what happened before. And so just like, it's hard for us to think, but we're talking about a collection of literature of, that's emerging and being shaped and reshaped as the story of the people develops over a course of a millennium. 
So you just really have to stop and think about that. Um, so that's not how most books are written today. <laughs> so, um, or even how like a collection of literature is, is um, put together today. So um, what we can say is that this collection of literature, the Hebrew Bible, um, emerged out of that, and these were the texts. Um, we don't have any records of like a moment when a group of priests got together and like voted or anything like that. Um, it's much more like these are the texts that consistently rose to the surface in the worship, in the liturgy, in the prayer life of this people group that eventually became focused on in their temple in Jerusalem. And these were the texts that were most treasured by the end of that period um, in the Jerusalem temple. And I, so YouTube is a, is a really bad analogy, um, <laughs> even though it's been a main vehicle for the Bible project. <clears throat> but there is something, actually this is actually a bad analogy in lots of ways, but it's good in just one way. Um, the way that certain videos go viral um, attest to something that, Lots of people keep having the same kind of encounter with this particular video that makes it so remarkable that just it skyrockets. You guys know what I'm, it's cat videos or this kind of thing, you know, whatever. And uh, so something like that happened um, where these particular texts um, consistently rose to the top as they were being shaped uh, over the course of, of many, many generations. That's for the Hebrew Bible. Um, but, at, but at the same time, there was a lot of intentionality to the shaping of the collection, and that's a whole other thing. And so there really were people working on it, but it, um, we don't have any evidence that it was like the conspiracy or power play um, kind of thing that's famous, you know, Da Vinci Code, this kind of thing. Um, so as regards the New Testament, it, it's actually fairly similar. You know, when the Jesus movement started, they didn't have anything like a centralized base of operations, because it was just such good news. It was just spreading throughout um, the ancient Roman world and then farther east. And so what really is remarkable um, is that a couple centuries into the Jesus movement, once again, a particular set of texts kept rising to the top in the worship and prayer life and liturgy of um, Jesus communities all, all over the world. So that by the time, there are famously some councils being held by church leaders in the late 200s and then early 300s AD. Um, what they're doing is not deciding anything. They're naming what has already been the case for a couple centuries now. And where there were debates and skirmishes about the boundary lines and this or that. But what is remarkable is actually, if you dive into the details, is the uh, unanimity uh, about the text that we have in our Bible. I'm not trying to paint a cleaner picture than what there is, but it is fairly r remarkable, and it's not the conspiracy theory that you know, gets traded, traded around. So it, if you look at the literature and say, well, what are the common denominators? Um, not so much criteria for selection, but what do these texts all have in common? So for the Hebrew Bible, it's, it's the texts that tell that story, that partnership story between Israel and the one who is about their failure, about the implications of that failure and reflecting on it, but also reflecting on the faithfulness of the one who is and how he's not going to abandon his people. And they're all about that. And when it comes to the collection of, of the New Testament, 
every single one of these writings has as its kind of foundation this conviction that Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified and risen Lord of the world, that he's the fulfillment of the whole story of Israel and the one who is, and that he's the king of the cosmos, and he's poured out his life and presence and spirit to bring renewal to our world and to human beings, and uh, he's going to finish the job and, and renew all of creation one day. And that's, because there are lots of other offshoots of early Christianity that ended up, you know, creating all kinds of literature. And it just, it maybe talks about that kind of stuff, but it also talks a lot about some other stuff. And you're like, whoa, what planet are these people on? And people could tell that. And so like, those texts didn't go viral, so to speak. They didn't rise to the top and they got lost in the sands of Egypt and got dug up a hundred years ago. And Dan Brown. Love to write about those in the Da Vinci Code, right? Uh, but anyway, so uh, that's a probably inadequate answer to well, that question. Well, no, it, it's actually very helpful, to me anyway, just that small distinction you made between maybe people coming together and digging out what they think it should be rather than collecting stories that could not be denied. That distinction is that you just made in your in your explanation, even though it was, you know, could be longer. Um, it's very helpful. So thank you. Um, I've got another question here for you. <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> um, <laughs> Probably. I don't know. <laughs> having one right now, I think. Um, or anything you could say about the significance and the relationship between what we've been talking about to this point, the written word, the collection of holy scriptures, and Jesus, who is called the Logos, or the living word. Um, yeah, I do have some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to have better thoughts about that question and keep learning more. Um, so, yes, Jesus in um, uh, the Gospel according to John, one of the four accounts of Jesus's story. In the New Testament, um, Jesus is introduced as the Word. Um, and in the opening lines of that account of John's Gospel, it actually begins with the opening words of the opening of the Hebrew Bible, in the beginning, um, which is how Genesis opens. Um, and Genesis opens with a story about God's, uh, God's Spirit, hovering in the formless nothingness. Uh, and then out of that nothingness and its potential, God speaks a word as the spirit is there. And the, actually the overlap of spirit, the, the reason I'm doing this, <laughs> uh, is because spirit or breath comes out of our mouths when we speak. And so there's a really important connection in, in the Bible between God's spirit and God's word. And so God's word and spirit bring order to the flourishing world that we call um, reality. <clears throat> and so John is opening up uh, his account of Jesus with that cosmic kind of prologue, um, saying that that word, the, the one by whom God ordered all that is, is the person that John says we met him, like the one who is became a person. Um, and the person that we met is the outgoing purpose and mind 
and word of the one who is, um, that went out and authored creation and then entered into it by becoming one of its creatures, by becoming human. So that's awesome. Like that is, that takes a lifetime to think about. <clears throat> and so um, we also have, however, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, especially through Moses and the, the prophetic tradition, <clears throat> they keep having this encounter with the one who is. Um, and often that's an encounter where they hear the words and purposes of the one who is enter their consciousness. And then they feel this great burden that they're supposed to go like tell the other Israelites about it. And so there develops this tradition of the, the prophets um, who encounter the one who is speak the word of God. And then as the story in the written collection develops, the phrase word of God becomes attached both to what the prophets say or what God says through the prophets and also then to the written collection that tells the story of the people. And then some of that collection is actually poetry of those prophets speaking the word of God. <clears throat> and so the word of God becomes a multifaceted reality. Um, it refers to the mind and purpose of God that goes out through whom God authors all of creation. Um, and it refers to the living person that is the embodiment of the mind and the heart of God become human. And so if I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the word of God. This whole family history, however, is about how we needed someone to come be the human and the Israelite for us that we and Israel consistently failed to be. And so in that sense, the whole written collection is a word of God about our need for the word of God to become the human. And so they're really about the same thing. Uh, the written collection is about our need for the word of God to be and do what we don't do very well, which is be human beings, <clears throat> but to do it for us. And so that's what the written collection is about. But the written collection, as a word from God, isn't just you know trying to tell us interesting information. It's actually there to facilitate our encounter with the one who is, who became human as, as the word of God. So they're really, they're really kind of inseparable. I think, the living word that is Jesus and the written collection that tells a story that leads up to the living word and then the fact that through all of its history, this written collection and now through the living word whose presence is among us by the spirit, like we all are having our encounters with the living word as we reflect on the written word but then also all kinds of other ways that the living word is speaking to us. Uh, through the, the presence and the voice of his spirit. So the word of God is all of those things. Um, and I guess in my mind, I don't know why it's quite helpful to try and privilege one. They are really all mutually illuminating in, in terms of how things actually developed throughout history. Those are, those, those are my thoughts at the moment. <laughs> those are great thoughts. Man, that's just rad. Right. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well... Thinking of it in context of what you were talking about earlier, the origins of the scriptures, how our Lord weaves in something like the concept of the word, and it's all connected, which again makes me want to fall in love with the scriptures and learn more and more because all this stuff, you know, becomes revealed to you. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. Agreed. 
Um, here's a question. How do we balance our approach to scripture as revelation to be believed as well as instruction to be obeyed? Yeah, he told me these questions, but it was a while ago. So they, <laughs> they feel fresh. They feel new. Um, well, I guess I'm, I, as I'm hearing the question in this moment about a revelation to be believed, instruction to be lived. Yeah? Is that how the question Obe works? Obeyed. obeyed. Oh, obeyed. Um, hmm. um, <clears throat> Very <laughs> I guess serious. I, not, it's not clear to me in this moment how those are different things. Um, so if if uh, it becomes revealed to me um, that uh, I have some issue with my body, I don't know. Um, I, oh, man, I had a terrible skateboarding injury a couple years ago. Hip, hip injury. Such a bummer. Cracked my hip. And it just talks to me every day now. And so, um, oh, actually, okay, well, let's run with this as a parable. So, so. <laughs> Uh, it was a, yeah, it was a very painful experience, and it's sore very often. So um, that is a revelation to me of the reality that I live in a mortal, failing body. Mm -hmm. um, th that fact that is the truth about my body um, has significant implications for the choices that I make with what yeah. I'm going to do with my body or not to do with my body anymore. And so in that sense, the reality tells me how I need to respond to it, and I can either be a fool or I can be wise with how I respond to reality. And I guess that is how I'm hearing and thinking about that question. So in other words, um, if I find myself in a world and I am going to accept this claim that I'm, I'm in a reality that is permeated and sustained and upheld by the conscious, living, transcendent presence of the one who is. If that's true, um, and if what you and I all are, are images and reflections of the one who is in all of these different human forms um, that have grown up in all of these different ways and cultures and families, but yet we have this sense that we are made for something so grand and beautiful um, and when the story of Jesus is told and it calls that alive inside of us, um, what we're responding to is reality. And um, if that's reality, then I suppose Jesus' call to love God and love your neighbor, you could take that as a command to be obeyed, but in, a, in another sense, really all you're doing is responding reasonably to what it's true. <laughs> and so I guess I don't, I guess they're this, in my mind, they're this, the same thing. I think that's the right answer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's right. It's, uh... I think you got it. <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> all right. Now, we... so, but maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe as it relates to the Bible, maybe it's about, there are some parts of the Bible that are telling the family story about what God has done. And so that's a a revelation of hmm. who God is in terms of what God has done through history. However, the whole story of what God is doing through this family history 
is calling humans, and Israel in particular, on behalf of all humanity, to be a certain kind of human partner in the world, which you could say they need to obey, but really he's just asking them to live in reality. Um, and since we do such a poor job of that, uh, he just came here himself to be the human who lives in reality for the first time. In a way, there was never really a truly human one until Jesus came along in the story of the Bible. That's one way to think about it. Is that he's the first like actual human who lived in reality. And um, we're called Sorry, to... That's just so exciting. <laughs> Why do you word things? I don't know, just very exciting to me. We're, just, we're in the flow. We're in the flow right now, you know. <laughs> but I, so I, that's, actually, I'm, that's a good question. I like that question. I'm going to think about that more. Well, ask it again next time. Okay, great. Um, wow, this actually, time is flying by really fast. I don't know, because we're in the flow. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Is that, I don't know, okay, great. We're um, just kind of jamming out up here. I, All right. <laughs> I probably only have time for one more question so we can get to questions from um, our friends and family. So let me choose. Let me choose. Um, oh, man, the last two questions are really good. This is a lot of responsibility. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to ask them both. Great. Great. Okay. Great. I, uh, and we'll just, you just have to answer quickly. Deal. Okay. I don't do a very good job of that, but okay. <laughs> um, so the next question would be, how much weight, and you, I'm sorry, this, it might not, you might not be able to answer this very quickly. Mm. And mm. Just mm. do what you can. Great. Um, how much weight would you give to cultural context mm. or historical context um, when it comes to biblical interpretation, that is maybe finding your way between extreme literalism through the lens mm. in which you mm. view the Bible or on the other end of the spectrum mm. um, would be symbolism um, to the point of maybe even changing theology. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, Josh <clears throat> often, or Josh sent over that Barth offered a third way in which he calls scripture true witness. So it's kind of a third in the middle way. Uh, would you agree with that? <laughs> and if so, can you define true witness? <laughs> Josh, Josh, asking me to talk about Karl Barth, of course. <clears throat> um, well, um, so maybe I'll talk about that last part. Um, but the idea of cultural context um, is crucial um, for, all, for communication to take place. You and I, Brett and Tim, right now, represent different cultures. We haven't talked for a long time. Yeah. And we were part of a church community together for a lot of years, but we haven't talked for a long time. And so we are in different families, and we're in the same city. Yeah. But if you just take fam we're in different little mini-cultures. And so, like, you're raising your kids, and we're raising our kids, and you develop your lingo and family jokes and, like, inside jokes based on your history. And so, that's what human culture is, just writ large over many periods of time and different languages altogether. So, we happen to speak the same language, so that's great. We can have this connection. But there actually is a big culture gap between you and I, even sitting right here in our life experience, 
And so if you wanted to start communicating to me the most important things that you believe about yourself and the world and God, my hunch is I would need to start learning some things about your culture, that is your family and your family history. And so if that's, and this is just fundamental to human communication. And so if that's true for same language, culture, it's like sitting right here, how much more so for texts that come um, from another people group uh, from the other side of the planet written in ancient languages, the form of which is not quite spoken that way anymore, ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. And you guys get my point. And so it's just, it's very intuitive, um, but if you haven't been in a, um, a church community that's modeled wise acknowledgement mm -hmm. of the Bible's cultural context, I know it can feel disorienting to hear like, well, it seems like it might mean this when you read the sentence in English from the book of whatever, um, but actually here's something really interesting. In the ancient world, they didn't think about the world the same way we do. They thought about it this way, and they had this totally different set of practices, and actually this English translation of the word doesn't quite get us fully to what the original language word was, and so here's what it means, even though what you're reading, what it says in English, and you're, when you have that, when I remember when I first started having those experiences with my English translation of the Bible, it was really, it kind of rocked me. I was like, well, can I trust anything then? Like, can't I just read this and like hear God speaking to me? And of course you can, because the word of God is the living word that can speak to you. But if I want to grow deeper in my understanding and if I want to honor the fact that God chose to, the one who is, chose to partner with actual people throughout history, in the same way he wants to partner with us, um, then understanding the family story means honoring its cultural context and that they wrote literature and communicated in ways that we don't. And if we want to really honor, I think honor is a great word, or love, or empathy. Um, if we want to show empathy to try and understand our neighbor as we want to be understood, um, then I think that means diving into the cultural context. And it's so awesome, and it's, ex it's so exciting. Um, but sometimes it does challenge um, our assumptions or um, understandings that we've had about certain parts of the Bible uh, for a long time. And I know that can be disorienting. I think I've just gone through the process of being disoriented and then discovering more on the other side of the disorientation that it's like, oh, this is great, <laughs> so exciting, I want more. And then you end up in school for far too long. But you don't have to do that. You can, act, you can read books by people who did that, and then they can help you have those experiences yourself. So, so, it, oh, so sorry, I'm not <laughs> answering very quickly. When it comes to so the literal and symbolism, it's sort of like, well, what did the author intend by the language that they meant? And um, if the author is writing symbolically, then I think we should read it as a symbol. And if they want us to see that there's an important historical referent to what's happening here, what we might call it literal, then I want to honor that intention. But it, it's not about is it literal or symbolic. It's like, what did the author mean to communicate? And then let's read it on that, that person's terms and follow where it goes. But yeah. That's great. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. I okay. didn't talk about Karl Barth. That's okay. I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Karl Barth, but I just... Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you this last question while I pull up some...
questions from yep, our great. friends. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice on practical ways that we can approach scripture um, in a way to grow in healthier ways to learn as individuals, but also as a church body together? Yeah, yes. Um, I mean, there's so many ways that, um, that scripture can function and should function and has functioned uh, in the life of God's people. So one form uh, and probably the most original form is that of gatherings where the story is read aloud and meditated on and celebrated by God's people in communal settings, like what happens in rooms like this regularly. And so the, the public reading of the scriptural story by groups of Israelites and early followers of Jesus is actually the oldest kind of recorded practice that we have about what people did with scripture. Also because in the ancient world, um, you know, they didn't have, um, you know, cheap trade paperback books. Uh, they had scrolls um, or parchment and uh, they were really expensive to produce. And so texts were a community, um, were community owned and were meant to facilitate an experience that people had in community. So that's, a, that's actually a primary context for scripture throughout history. Um, and then as um, the history of the book developed and books became more easily available, um, then more and more people throughout history, especially after the printing press, have been able to have access to have scriptures um, it, for their own copies. And so then there fosters a culture that before, like the printing press, would have just been, you memorize huge chunks of it. And that's how you read the Bible, is you, you recite it quietly to yourself. Um, and that's the main way that individuals encountered the Bible um, before the printing press made it widely available. And so, but individual um, memorization and recitation, reading in large chunks sometimes can really help to get the full scope, reading in smaller chunks meditatively. Um, and there's different ways to meditate on scripture. That's a whole, whole thing you could talk about that's awesome by itself. And then I have found, and I found early, um, the, another mode, not the only, but an important mode, was in learner, learner mode. And so um, I began to learn about how commentaries and Bible dictionaries worked so that I could begin to have them on hand when um, I was in study mode. And over the years, you know, just what you learn kind of builds up. And so that's another mode that you can be in. So there's lots of different ways. And I think like I'm trying to teach my 9 and 11-year-old boys how to eat food, um, that it's important to have a balanced diet, you know? You keep, don't just, it's just not all protein. You need the grains, you know, but you also need the, actually you need more veggies than anything else. And, and so I think scripture is like that. Communal, personal, study, meditative. These are all ways. And I think in the journey of following Jesus, learning how each of those can fit into my life in different rhythms is, is a really important for getting a healthy relationship to scripture. Thank you. You're welcome. That was very helpful. Um, okay, I'm going to choose just a few questions. And if we don't get to your question, I'm so sorry. Um, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Um, but we'll get to a few. The first one is personal in nature. I hope you don't mind. Get ready to be vulnerable. 
Um, have you ever had a time when you felt like life was so hard that you didn't want to study and read the Bible? Mm. And are there any passages that regularly draw you back in? Hmm. Hmm. Um, that's a great question. Um, I am uh, truly <clears throat> not trying to sound pious. Um, but there's, there's never been a time that I haven't been absolutely fascinated and just full of joy about studying the Bible. I just, it's brought so much life to my life uh, that I, so, so that. Um, but then a lot of the drive has been also puzzlement, disorientation, and disturbance in my soul about some things that I encounter in Scripture. Um, but I guess because, for, for me, it was um, Jesus. I had this encounter with Jesus, and the way that I encountered Jesus was through skateboarders who, like, ran the skate park, would tell stories about him or recite his teachings and, like, talk about them at, like, a talk. They would shut down the skate park halfway through the night. Somebody would give a Jesus talk for t 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then you could skate the second half of the night in the park if you sat through the talk. <clears throat> and if you didn't sit through the talk, you, had to, you couldn't skate the second half of the night. You had to come back next week, sit through the talk, and then you could skate in the park. And so um, this was my, like, introduction, reintroduction to Jesus was hearing people who looked like me and who were better skateboarders than I was talk about his teachings and read the stories about him. And I was so compelled by that that eventually I started reading the Bible. And I know that's not everybody's story. Often for many people, it's the other way, where they're hearing about the Bible from their earliest memories, and Jesus is just one part of the, he's like one story in the Bible. But when I think about the Bible, I don't mainly just think about Jesus. I think about all kinds of other stuff. And so it was the opposite for me. And so for me, Scripture has always been in the service of illuminating Jesus, and he's the reason why I'm in this in the first place, as like a Bible nerd. Um, so that's my own personal experience. The, um, the disturbances and the questions in terms of what's in the Bible um, specifically focus on um, the repeated ways in which God, the one who is, participates in violence. Um, as a part or an expression of his partnership with the, the family of Israel throughout their history. And then there's a real about face in the story of Jesus uh, because he actively shuns any forms of coercive violence to bring the one who is his kingdom, uh, you know, from heaven to earth. And so how you deal with that little puzzle right there, mm -hmm. the, the, the multifaceted nature of God's relationship to violence in the Bible that's a deep puzzle, and it bothers me every day. And I, you know how some puzzles, the most important questions in life are ones that I, I think you sit with them long enough and you're like, okay, this is definitely not like one day I'll wake up and it's the riddle. Yeah. It's somehow the, the nature of the tension is such that it draws you in, and the, the journey of wrestling with it, I think, is a big part of the point. And that's been the main issue with me that just doesn't go away. So, yeah. so yep. That's very encouraging. Good. <laughs> Good. 
I don't know. I just feel like that can reveal the character of God. If you sit in it long enough, he still is with you. And God is awesome. All right. Uh, man, I think we only have time. It's after seven for one more question. Um, it's going to be a very short, practical question. Um, which translation of the Bible do you think is the most accurate to the original text and why? Um, uh, that's a lot like asking. Um, I don't want to know what you're going to say. <laughs> I don't play golf, but um, I have tried before. And one thing that I noticed um, is that asking, like, what's the best golf club to play a game of golf with is a stupid question to ask. <laughs> I do know that much. Uh, because it all depends on uh, the situation that you're in and the purpose for which you need the club. Far or long? Am I in the sand? Am I in the grass? Am I, you know, you guys get what I'm saying? Are you with me? Okay, all right. So, um, so it's a lot like that. Um, translations... Um, are created, or usually come their inception, um, is, a translation is an act of interpretation whenever you're rendering communication from one language into another. Yeah. And so the different aims, goals, philosophies, underlying values, and the target audience mm -hmm. are all going to radically impact decisions that are made in the level of interpretation and translation. And so... Um, there are some translations uh, that are not meant to be used as study Bibles, and they never were made for that. They're made um, to put things in fresh language in a way that's easy to understand, and those can be really powerful ways to engage Scripture to spark your imagination. Um, but I wouldn't recommend translations like that if you want to begin to build some study tools and learn how to study words, for example. And so they're finding a translation that's really actually probably terrible English um, because it's trying to map the English onto the original language as, at least as close as is feasible. And so it's going to be like, never read that translation aloud to anybody. But it's a great study Bible, <laughs> and it's really helpful. So it's kind of, it's like that. So I, I really encourage people to read many translations over the course of periods of time and to change up the translation that you're reading. And any translation that you're reading is always going to have a couple pages at the beginning that'll tell you who made it, why, what their goals were, what their um, decisions that they made are. And you can kind of get a sense and be like, okay, I'm not really down for that one. And so you don't have to buy that one, buy another, you know, go look at another one. But we also are in, in <clears throat> the modern West. And so there is a because of market capitalism, there is a glut of English translations because the, the market demands it. And so uh, we have more translations of the Bible in English than any people have ever had in the history of the Bible. And that you could make a lot of commentary on that. But one thing that it gives you is lots of different ways to encounter the Bible in different translations that are made by really remarkable, uh, smart teams of people. So we're in a great position to um, encounter the Bible in, in lots of different translations. And that's a, that's a good thing, in my opinion. Thank you, Tim. That's You're very, very cool. welcome. Um, well, guys, it's a little bit after 7, so we're going to wrap it up. And I would just like to ask, Tim, would you pray over the congregation and end in a word of prayer? 
Yes. Yes, I would be happy to. Um, <clears throat> to uh, we've been talking about the Word of God that is written and that is living and that is um, the Word of God that is Jesus. And one thing that's really important to do to words, um, especially when they're spoken to you by the one who is, is to listen. Um, so uh, I'll conclude with the, a prayer that comes from uh, the book of Deuteronomy. It's a prayer called the Shema. I'll sing it in Hebrew, and then I'll uh, pray it in English. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheicha Bechol levavacha uvechol nafshecha uvechol mehudecha Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of who you are, and with everything that you have. Father, thank you that we could be here and do this. Uh, please, in your mercy and generosity, uh, speak to us. Every person here is on a journey, some kind of journey, to discover what is true so that we can live faithfully to what is truly good and beautiful and right and just and that comes from you. Please, by your spirit, uh, point us to the living word that is Jesus and give us the grace to listen when you speak. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bye, everyone. Thanks, you guys. See you next Sunday. Mm -hmm.